I'm Helen Marshall, and this is the Diary of a CLO. I hope no one's listening, but if you are, definitely share it. On this episode, I'm joined by Catherine Nicholson, the creative director of the virtual training team. Catherine talks about the shift in learner and facilitator expectations when it comes to virtual training, and we explore how the very real fight for attention affects how you design virtual experiences. We also take a look into the future of learning. Enjoy. Catherine, hi, and welcome to the Diary of a CLO. How are you? I'm very excited to be here. Thank you, Helen. All good and um, excited about the year ahead. Brilliant. Yeah, great to have you here. And, and thank you so much for joining. Um, so you are creative director of the virtual <laughs> training team. Are you able to, to give me a bit of a, an, an overview of your experience so far? What led you to founding the virtual training team um, and a little bit about your story, essentially? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, where do I start? So my background's L and D. I've been in um, L and D for, dare I say, over twenty years now. <laughs> um, and like a lot of people in L and D, um, I was tearing around the country, around the world, actually delivering training, designing training. Um, and about twelve years ago, I think it was, I started to do a bit of virtual training. And I'll be honest, I hated it to begin with. <laughs> It was so stressful, you know, those tumbleweed moments. And I fell into the classic trap that a lot of people fall into thinking that, yeah, I'm a confident face-to-face trainer. I can do this virtually, not a problem. Um, And I was wrong. I think I wasn't quite ready for it. I don't think participants were really ready to learn that way that long Mm -hmm. ago. And the tech and, you know, bandwidth wasn't ready. Um, So it was really hard, but I stuck with it because I knew it was it was coming at some point. It wasn't going to go away. So I stuck with it, learned to love it, um, hopefully learned to get quite good at it and just started to feel that shift towards um, more and more organizations feeling that they needed to explore virtual training for all sorts of reasons. Um, Sustainability, you know, a lot of companies have sustainability targets now um, and we're concerned about people traveling and also the the monetary cost of traveling as well. Mm. Um, Inclusion. So a lot of organizations that we were talking to around then had concerns that a lot of training was like head office based. So you had an advantage if you were based at the big hubs and less of an advantage. So it just felt like it was a conversation that we were having more and more. Mm. Um, And so it was over six years ago now, we set up the virtual training team. I say me, it was me and my husband. Um, And the crazy thing is, to begin with, it was a lifestyle choice. (laughs) I've never worked so hard in my life as I work now and have done since we started the virtual training team. Um, But that's why we started it, to just focus in that area. And always our mission was never to convince people to go virtual. It was always a case of, it's coming anyway. We'll help you get it right, because we know what it's like when you get it wrong, because we've done that with being there. Um, and so we like to think of as being, you know, we were we were virtual before it was cool and we were definitely virtual before it was necessary because then, of course, COVID hit and the whole world just turned upside down and virtual training did become a necessity. So we were, um, we were in a position where we were able to help a lot of companies make that shift. Organisations were coming to us to say, 
you know, help. We we sell gene sequencing machines and we go into labs to train people on how to use them. We can't do that now. How do we do it? So we did a lot of train the trainer mm. stuff um, through COVID. But, you know, we do all sorts. Um, in addition to that, we have global programs in customer service and sales and onboarding and lots of programs for managers and grads and all that classic stuff. But we do it virtually. So I live here on Teams and Zoom most of the time. Yeah. Did you, do you feel that, um, so you, you mentioned that maybe learners weren't necessarily ready to be taught or to learn virtually in that, in that way, I don't know, 10, 10 years ago maybe. How has mm. that, that shifted? So I imagine that people are more comfortable in these situations now. Was there, have you seen that gradual shift? And how was that affected by the pandemic? Because I appreciate people had so many more demands on time that actually learning was really not a priority for people, even mm. though some people definitely had to still do that. Um, how Have you seen the ebbs and flows of that? For sure. So it it started before the pandemic, but it obviously escalated hugely once lockdown happened. Mm. Um, so the shift was people getting more used to using tech. So I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but if you look at the usage of Zoom and Teams before pandemic and then at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like a huge spike of usage went up and then it stayed. And I think people were forced to start using tech to collaborate and to meet and to talk to colleagues and connect. And so it just fed into training. But I think it was that, like you said, people not being ready. I think for a lot of participants, they were scared of the tech. Mm. Not quite sure what it means scared of being on camera or really uncomfortable being on camera and yet most people are completely used to it now so that confidence in using tech led to learners being confident learning that way Mm. but that in itself is pausing challenges as well because that confidence that now people are like yeah I can do this it's dead easy I can learn on zoom or teams um means that that confidence can lead to a belief that I could also multitask (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and really believe that they can learn and do emails at the same time. So we've regularly talked about this idea of fighting for attention. Um, You know, even in face-to-face training, there's still an element of grabbing and keeping people's attention because they might check their phone or just mentally they're thinking about their to-do list or their next meeting. So there's always that challenge as trainers that we keep people's attention move that to virtual you've got to work that bit harder because you've got the whole world wide web at your fingertips and things Mm -hmm. popping up but at least in the earlier days the novelty of virtual training meant people were more likely to engage with it um don't get me wrong the way that we design and deliver our training it's super engaging and of course people's attention is is grabbed um but we have noticed that you've just got to work that bit harder. You've just got to be that much cleverer, that much more relevant and specific to keep that attention mm-hmm. because people are super confident in tech and they've got multiple screens and um, you just got to keep working harder. Yeah, but I suppose also from the, the trainer's perspective, so I know you mentioned about um, training the trainer, that confidence that comes from utilising tech on a daily basis, I imagine might um spill over into the confidence you have as a facilitator thinking yeah I can I can present quite easily in a in a in a group conversation on mm-hmm. teams for example but actually 
facilitating training is a very different experience to just simply mm. presenting. Like you say, you need to fight for people's attention. You need to make sure that you're still engaging them throughout and, and not allowing them to drift off and, and start thinking about what they're going to have for dinner. Um, <laughs> have you noticed that at all? Well, it's interesting you mentioned about the challenge for trainers. Um, I had some really painful conversations at the start of the pandemic where independent um, trainers and coaches were coming to us literally in tears, in tears saying, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of this technology. I don't know what I'm doing. I've resisted making the move because I didn't have to. And now the only way I can make my living is to do it virtually. It was heartbreaking in some cases. Um, and of course, those people are nailing it now um, mm. and, and, and got through that. But that was really difficult. Yeah, really difficult to see and hear. Because um, you don't want anyone to be left behind, do you? Um, but tech moves so quickly. I mean, it, you know, think about where we were 10 years ago. You know, mm. iPhones were a novelty. And how do we live without them now, our smartphones? Yeah, I, d- I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there's, there's do you think there's a false sense of what virtual training is or or can be do you think less than than there was I know when we first started out a lot of assumptions were that virtual training was e-learning mm. and then the assumption was oh I get it's live like it's on teams or zoom but that it's um it's less interactive. It's more like, well, I'm, I'm doing inverted commas. I know we're, we're on audio, but like that webinar experience, the traditional webinar experience of being talked out with a bit of Q&A. Um, and even now, you know, I was talking to a new client yesterday who said, I don't really believe in virtual training. And we were like, tell me more. You know, why is that? And he said, well, you know, it's passive. It's, you know, you're just listening to somebody talk at you, watching slides. It's like, no, that's, but that's not good virtual training. That's just watching slides and listening to somebody speak. So elements of that exist, but I think, I think in the main people are convinced now that it's just, as, you know, and I'm not here to fight against face-to-face. We still do elements of face-to-face in our blended programs. Mm. Um, but it's it doesn't have to be a poor relation to face to face. It's 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 right. It's up there, and I think it isn't even a necessarily that we need to be making choices around like is face to face better or worse than virtual. They're just both required, and the same goes looking at VR, which is something that um you know that we're exploring right now. It's I'm not here to convince everyone that you know VR is a, a better way of learning. It's just another option. Yeah, um, yeah, another tool in your toolkit, okay. essentially. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to have all of those options because we didn't used to have them. It used to be get in a room with a flip chart and a a PowerPoint deck. That's your only option, really, for training. There's so many different options now. We can really blend it up for everyone's preferences. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I suppose what what does good look like to you? I know you've you've hinted at a few things about you know retaining attention and making sure that you're able to to engage your audience but what on a practical level what does that look like and I'm sure it changes depending on what you're (laughs) what you're trying to to teach um where do I start I think it starts with the design so an easy trap is to just fall into that working on your slide deck presenting your slide deck the Mm. slide deck's just a tiny part of the whole experience isn't it um so it's about designing for virtual thinking intentionally about you know your outcomes what's the purpose what do we need people to think feel and do as a result all that good strong stuff that you would do in any training Mm -hmm. but just recognizing that we've just 
maybe got to be a bit more ruthless and dial it up a bit more for the virtual environment. So by that, I mean, you know, sometimes it's like, well, that's a nice thing to do. It'd be a bit of fun to build that into the session, but actually, is it that relevant? Because the moment you, the moment you've got participants thinking this isn't hundred percent relevant to me, I've got more important things that I need to do. You've lost them. So Ooh. it's about making sure that we're keeping them the whole time. Um, I would say in part, it's about using some of the extra resources like whiteboarding, for example, or things like Mentimeter and Kahoot. And there's loads of other quizzing apps. Um, there's loads of stuff like that that you can use, but I would say it's about using it with purpose and intention. So not just using it because we can, because it spices things up a bit. It's about thinking if we are going to use a whiteboard, we're using it because it's adding value, it's relevant, um, all of that great stuff. And I think the third thing I would mention that is really different is how you create a conversation mm. in the virtual space. So in a face-to-face environment, you can ask a a bad question <laughs> to the group and recover from it a lot easier. Or you can ask, you know, like that classic open question. So everyone, what do you feel about that? In a face-to-face environment, you can use your body language and eye contact more easily to pull people in and encourage people to contribute. Mm. Whereas in virtual still, in most cases, you're just going to get that awkward tumbleweed moment, which personally, it hurts. I really found that a painful moment. And I know it's probably way worse for me than it is participants. So it's about asking questions in different ways. So we've got... um uh, a whole process we call it our one two three four process because it's super simple that we use which just starts out with in your design thinking about what are the brilliant questions that you want to ask so being intentional thinking about a question maybe putting it on a slide so it's really clear um and I know that might sound pretty simple to suggest but the I know that might sound really simple to suggest but in a face-to-face environment or where you're really confident you can more easily like pluck questions from nowhere. Mm. Whereas in a virtual environment, you're managing the tech, you've got videos, you've got the chat box to look at. And so relying on yourself to create a great question in the moment is more of an ask. So Mm. think about your question is number one and put it on a slide. Number two is um, decide how you want people to respond. So what I mean by that is it's, one thing asking a question, but if we don't say answer in the chat box or raise your virtual hand or whatever it is that you want the response to be, then people are less likely to respond. Mm. Um, they'd rather you tell them. And what we've also found is if you give them too many choices, like, hey, respond however you feel, you know, put it in the chat box, raise your hand, like, then people wait and see what everybody else will do. So being really clear, like, this is how to respond. Number three is then decide what you're going to do with that response. So if we're going to get everyone to rate themselves one to 10 on their confidence levels in negotiation, in the chat box, what am I going to do with those numbers? So I'm going to say, I'm going to think in advance that I'm going to ask you, Helen, that you've said it's an eight. What what would you need to make it a nine or an 8.5? I'm going to think about that. And then the fourth and final piece of the of the puzzle, which is amazingly simple, but so effective, is what we call pass the baton. So great, I've heard from you, Helen. Who would you like to hear from next? Mm. And then you get a participant to choose who we hear from. So it's less pressure on the group and um, the conversation flows. And it's really simple, but it could be a game changer. Yeah, and uh, some really interesting, I mean, really useful tips in there anyway. But from what you're saying, I'm actually thinking from, um, from an inclusive perspective, laying out those kind of, 
being really clear and intentional about the steps that you're taking and how you want people to respond, what's happening next, and allowing people to um, to really understand the clear instruction will actually create that more inclusive environment for people as well, which links into what you said right at the beginning. So it's it's I wonder if there's you know some real strength in in doing that, that we can take into, even into um, classroom training to mm. think about how you can be more intentional and, and, and inclusive. Yeah, definitely. Because those open questions to the group, I'm an extrovert. I feel really uncomfortable with pauses and silences. So if I'm a participant, I'm always going to jump in and fill that gap. Mm. <laughs> so I'm going to be the participant that speaks the whole time and other people that might be more reflective might not get as much of a, a voice in the session. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's creating it's creating that space for for people who like to do to approach things differently or mm. or think differently as well. Um, part of part of the battle, as you've um, mentioned, is that this fight for attention. How does it affect what you do, and how do you kind of combat that? I mean, some of the things that you've just said will will feed into that, but what's the bigger picture there? So for us. And probably for a lot of people in similar positions, it's about never being satisfied that what we're doing is good enough. Um, and I don't mean for that to sound negative. We we do that in a really positive way. So our design studio, we've got a team of learning experienced designers. Um, we have forensic analysis sessions every other week where we take a workshop or a um, some coach notes or something and we get really into the detail to go, what works and how do we keep making it work? What could be even better? And it's hilarious sometimes we can spend like half an hour debate in one sentence, but it's like, come on, we could always make it better. Um, something else that we're working on is an internal project. And forgive me, this is classic me, but everything has to have a name. And we call this Project Sticky. <laughs> and project Sticky is experimenting with different things that we can do to make learning stickier. So making... Um, it more likely that participants will apply their actions, apply their learning. So we're testing out different things. And what we've discovered is that there's a lot actually that you can do that begins before the training, as well as during the training, and then at the end of the workshops in how people set their actions. Mm. So we're just trying out different things the whole time and experimenting and um, having that impatience to just keep getting better because we have to keep fighting for that you know winning the fight for attention yeah and what what sparked that what what sparked project sticky i suppose are are were you finding that there was uh, a need to to just be able to identify what had stuck more explicitly or are you tr- just trying to push yourself further or what what did that look like for you yeah a bit of a bit of all of that really um so we design and deliver with learning transfer in mind the whole time. It's a, it underpins everything that we do. We're really passionate about that. But I think, yeah, there was an element of, like, we think that we're delivering great learning transfer. Our clients mm. and participants are telling us that they are. The, the follow-up feedback is telling us that. But we don't know for sure. Like, we don't have the data to back it up. And we don't know what more we could be doing that, could be better so we've got like full of ideas but how do we know that this idea of doing a particular type of learning nudge is going to have a bigger impact than this different type of learning nudge so we're like well we test it we try mm. it 
trial it. Um, and so one of the ways that we're testing that out is in programs. So like if you've got a program that's say, say manager program across six months at the end of every session, um, either they set their own action or we set them like a work-based um, task. And then at the and then we, we sort of nudge them or we set that up in a particular way so that when they come back to the next session, we do an anonymous poll, first of all, to see how many people actually applied it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we give them time to reflect on it. But it means that over the course of a program, we can trial different approaches and see how it impacts how many people mm. have actually done their task. And I know that it's not an exact science because somebody might not have completed their task, not because of the way that the action was set up. It could be that they just we're too busy or whatever, but it's, it's starting to give us some data to help us work out what, what's working best. Yeah, absolutely. It's just taking that first step, isn't it? To, to, as you say, just to, to, to figure out the way forward and it'd be interesting to, to see, um, you know, if you would, if you were using the same program, how many people, um, if you did that feedback at the end of goal setting and action setting at the end of each session and then looked at the feedback in the beginning of the next session but then with a different group took a different approach and then compared mm. the data sets um yeah it'll just be interesting to, to obviously to gain that insight and then think about how that affects your program design moving forward yeah um just taking a step back slightly you briefly mentioned vr and i'm i'm not going to let it drop um <laughs> well how do you how do you think that um i suppose what does immersive learning really mean to you and and what does the future look like with does is vr factored into that or are you interested in it you, you mentioned it might be another tool in your toolkit um are, are you headed in that direction definitely definitely um so it's a bit like you know, we said about like virtual training, it wasn't a case of, is it good or bad? It's like, it's coming. So how do we, how do we make it work? Um, our view or my view certainly is that's the case with VR. It's coming, it's here and people are using it already. Um, and I saw a stat just the other day that I think of people using VR, 53% of the applications that are being used are for commercial purposes. Mm-hmm. And yet people think VR, it's about gaming. It's about, you know, watching movies um so a lot of the advancements in applications a lot that have been um driven by meta actually um are very much focused on using vr in the workspace so we've been playing with it and for me it's as simple as this so like teams and zoom they weren't designed for training they were designed for collaborative working and meetings but people like you and me went, well, this is great. We can use it. You know, if we're meeting there, we may as well train there and learn together. Um, And it's the same for VR. So, you know, companies are starting to meet in VR and have experiences together. So it just makes sense. The next step is we learn. Mm -hmm. Um, And to learn in VR, and I'm I'm talking live, so um, instructor-led stuff, because I know you can do the the self-led stuff, which is awesome. Where we're interested in is the instructor-led stuff. So you're still with a coach or a trainer. um, You're still having conversations and you're still practicing and you're still sharing experiences, but it is in this completely immersive environment. So you feel like you've been somewhere. Mm. I think one of the challenges, um, that fight for attention that we talked about earlier, because everyone's living in teams in their working day, they might have like a team stand up first thing then they've got a client meeting at 10 o'clock then they've got whatever at 11 and then they've got a training workshop at 12 in the the 12 o'clock workshop just might feel like another meeting in the diary 
Um, so how do you make it feel different? So if you go somewhere in VR, you feel like you've gone somewhere. You feel mm. like you've been somewhere different. And it that immersive experience, it's much harder to mentally wander off and check emails and whatever because you're completely immersed. Yeah, that's, re- that's really interesting. I think I've seen a... Uh, a conversation that's emerging around the use of VR for kind of practical, very practical, functional skill building, when actually I think the other side of it is more to do with that kind of self-awareness or softer skills or power skills or whatever it is that you mm-hmm. want to call them. And how do you do that in a in a VR environment? Because it almost sounds counterintuitive to say we're going to go into a virtual environment to talk about these very human skills that yeah. you need. But actually, there's there's some really good stuff going on in the industry. And I think part of that, the idea there is bringing people together in an environment where they can experience something together as well. So yeah. actually doing that, you're bringing that human connection back into whatever it is that you're doing. We had our Christmas party in VR. Did you? <laughs> yeah, every single one of us. It was 15 of us in VR and we were running around doing snowball fights. We had a, a virtual snow building competi- snowman building competition and then we ended up sitting around a virtual campfire having a chat about our favourite Christmases and it was completely different, like mm. completely different, but, they're, um, but great fun and you know everyone's still talking about it now. And so you can like, like another example, we were talking to a – contact center recently recently who were bringing vr into their training um and we were discussing the idea that you could create um like a scenario where you're in that scenario you're in a customer's house um snowing outside it's cold their boilers packed in and you're having that conversation around you know how do we fix this or next steps that's going to be a lot different practicing in that environment than in a classroom Mm. you know a classic classroom or um zoom experience just adding those three-dimensional elements to make it more real yeah absolutely it's like that that step further of um i guess 3d simulation training isn't it mm-hmm. making it much more of a rounded experience um and yeah i think i think there's something in that idea of almost team building as well via vr so what mm-hmm. can you do to do those maybe those cheesy exercises that you would have done face to face where, I don't know, you're catching people when they fall. I don't know whether that still happens or not. Um, Probably somewhere. <laughs> something something like that, that, you know, is, is to do with that human connection. Um, yeah. It'd be interesting to see what happens in that space. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that um, I would say to anyone that's thinking about VR, you've to understand it, you've just got to put a headset on and experience mm-hmm. it. It's really hard to explain. Um, what it's like so people are concerned that it might feel claustrophobic when it's actually the opposite you put the headset on and the whole world opens up um sound is real in there you know if if you've got somebody that's to your right and they speak you naturally turn your head because the sound comes from that direction um what we found as well just a a, a stranger side um is we've got a lot of reports from people whose preference is introversion feeling much more comfortable in a vr environment speaking up and um getting more involved than they would in a zoom environment don't quite know why that is yet but we one idea is the weirdness of not seeing yourself mm-hmm. so that is that um self what's the word i'm looking for um self-consciousness of being on camera mm. for a lot of people 
means that they don't relax as much. Whereas when you're in VR, you, you're just in there. You're not looking at yourself mm. just with other people. That's really interesting. Is, and is that, is that feedback from, from users of a certain program that, that you gathered that data from? Yeah, I mean, it's anecdotal. It's just various mm. conversations that we've had. But um, So we use um, Horizon Workrooms for a lot of hours. And, yeah, that's, that's definitely feedback that we're getting. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And I wonder if the people who are normally extroverted in those situations feel differently about the way they experience it as well yeah I'm just I am an extrovert (laughs) how does that impact on me Mm. um yeah maybe maybe there's less pressure of carrying the conversation because more people are willing to get involved Mm. just thinking Mm. yeah just thinking that one out loud Mm. yeah it's interesting to think about um, so we've we've covered, I suppose we've covered VR there and what you think is maybe coming in the future or definitely coming in the future. What else, what does the future of learning in general look like for you? I would say even more of a blended approach because we've got more things that we can blend into learning now. Um, so we love the idea that programs have a required element and a, and a desired element so that the required element is that if you're signing up to this program it's a requirement um that you do certain elements together as a group but there could be desired elements that you can explore if you're more curious and that could be topics and content but it could be the way that you do certain things as well so you can blend up you know self-directed learning with a bit of VR with some face-to-face with some virtual workshops there's so much that we've got within our power that obviously using it intentionally and with purpose rather than just because we can is really important but you know that's where you know podcasts <laughs> here we are right now we're seeing podcasts being used more and more on learning mm-hmm. so I think it is that that real carefully curated blended experience that we're going to see more of yeah yeah absolutely I agree I agree and I think being able to design experiences that that feed into lots of or utilize lots of different elements and approaches I think is as long as they're used in the right way obviously not just for the sake of it but I think it, it's providing that option options for people and and being and allowing people to choose which direction mm-hmm. they go as well as saying yeah you need to do this but, but actually using different different elements to bring people people along on that journey essentially definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, looking at a podcast, for example, a lot of people want to learn on the go. So you could be listening to something like this while you're walking the dog or in the gym. And um, that suits. For me, I listen to my podcasts when I'm getting ready in the morning. Mm. Um, just yeah. nice different options, isn't it? Yeah, um, I started um, I started listening to podcasts when, when I'm running and it just completely changed my mm-hmm. my approach to running I actually enjoy kind of going out putting putting my headphones on listening to to something whatever it is it doesn't always have to be kind of I often listen to work-related podcasts but just giving yeah. yourself that space to just not really have to run along to a beat but actually be part of a conversation while you're in that space is yeah, yeah it's, it's completely completely changed my approach to running yeah, rather than thinking about the next step and the next step, yeah. the next step. <laughs> exactly. you can lose yourself in something else and get fit at the same time. Yeah, ideal. Yeah. Um, so just just to wrap it up, I know you mentioned you um, you work with your husband, so you co-founded the virtual training team mm. with your husband. 
Uh, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from that? And I, and I don't know why I necessarily equated founding a business with your husband as leading into the biggest lesson you've learned. Maybe it is, but <laughs> what's your insight there? Separate offices. <laughs> um, we, we met at work, so we've always worked together. So it's, um, I know for a lot of people, suddenly starting to work with your partner would be quite strange. Um but I, we we did find that we just couldn't work in the same space as each other. Like mm. I get really frustrated when he starts shuffling papers or like just before we had this podcast, I was like, he sent something to the printer. What's he doing that for? <laughs> um, but I would say, I think a big lesson that I've, I've, I've learned a lot. I'm, I've learned so much doing this. I have to say um, one is to make that decision as to why you're doing it. So we could have, um, we could have worked just the two of us and slowly built, the virtual training team and what we do. We chose to invest in people and bring amazing, amazing team together um, and grow everyone. And that brings other dynamics and I guess other pressures, but it's so joyous to work with other people and see other people grow. And I think it's about just making that decision as to to why you're doing that. Um, Mm. So I've used the word intentional quite a lot in this conversation, but I would say that it is thinking about what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How does it impact us? How does it impact our team? How does it impact our participants and our coaches and our clients? And just being considerate of that the whole time. So there's a lot more responsibility to consider so many more people. Um, and for us, it's absolutely worth it. Um, but it isn't really something that I had thought about beforehand. Mm. And I think about all of that every day <laughs> yeah well uh, Catherine it's been it's been lovely talking to you and you've shared some real insight there and I'm really excited to to hear to hear and to see what the virtual training team do um in the future off all oh, like thanks. all that maybe off the back of project sticky um but yeah I really appreciate your time and have really enjoyed our conversation so thank, thank you. you so much for having me I've loved it this podcast is powered by Thrive We're a complete learning and skills platform creating modern learning solutions for modern businesses globally. Check us out.